again, everyone. This is Mark Mopsessian. I'm the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's, and I'm joined again by my friend and colleague, the Center's other co-director, Mark DiGirolami, for an episode of Legal Spirits, which is our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, or you can subscribe and find past episodes on various streaming platforms including Apple iTunes and Spotify and Android and a whole host of other places as well. Well, Mark, this is sort of a traditional podcast episode for us. This is our end of term podcast. We're going to talk about the end of the Supreme Court's 2022-2023 uh, term. Um, there weren't a lot of blockbuster law and religion cases like there were last term, but there were a couple of cases that I think it's worth talking about. And we've We've covered both of these cases in earlier podcast episodes, too. Uh, the two cases I'm talking about are Groff, Groff versus DeJoy, and 303 Creative versus Ellenis. And I think, um, as I say, even though these aren't really blockbuster cases, Mark, I guess you'd agree that they are significant and, and worth discussing anyway. Oh, of course. Yeah, no. And I think uh, right, you're exactly right. This is our uh, traditional July podcast to discuss the uh, big, so, such as they are, big June uh, uh, cases, the end of term cases, and and uh, but you're right. They're they're they're. And we'll talk a little bit about this. They're um, not blockbuster. In fact, not particularly in my own view. Certainly one of them, but even two of them, not that controversial. Uh, at least as a legal matter. Uh, obviously, they are con may be controversial for other sorts of reasons, political and ideological reasons. But as a, as a legal matter, not too controversial. Uh, in uh, uh, either case, in my own view. Well, we'll talk about the consequences of these cases. I, I, I think that um, they may be more important symbolically than, than anything else, although I think that 303 Creative might, there might be a hint of some change there that we'll talk about, but um, they certainly have gotten attention. So let's talk about the first one. The first case is Groff versus DeJoy. Um, this was a 9-0 opinion, so this certainly, uh, certainly supports your view that these were not you know, terribly important or terribly controversial cases. Um, this is a, an opinion on a question of statutory interpretation, um, specifically interpretation of Title VII, which is the federal employment anti-discrimination statute that um, prohibits, among other things, discrimination in employment on the basis of religion. And Title VII uh, provides that employers have to, quote, reasonably accommodate, close quote, the uh, religious practice of an employee. That's part of what anti-discrimination means. The employer has to reasonably accommodate an employee's religious practice unless, I'm quoting again now, unless the employer is unable to do that without undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business, okay? And that was the phrase that the court was interpreting, undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. Now, about 50 years ago, a little less than that, 46 years ago or so, in a typically confusing Burger Court opinion called TWA versus, all, all those opinions were very, very confusing. I, I think yeah. the Burger Court is, this was just not a successful court in a lot of ways, I think. Right, Mark? Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, those- Think about uh, Lemon. Think about Lemon. I know, and there's so many- a colleague of ours calls it the Disco Seventies Court, and, and well, I think or, or Wisconsin versus. I mean, just in the sense of understanding what it is the court is trying to say. That that's all I'm saying. Anyway, TWA versus Hardis is, is another one of those opaque Burger Court opinions, um, and in that case, the court suggested, I mean, suggested is being put politely. It said this. It said that 
undue hardship means um, any effort or cost that is more than de minimis, which would mean that if accommodating an employee's religion would require anything more than a trivial adjustment by the employer, then the employer didn't have to do anything, um, which is really pretty weak tea for a discrimination statute, right? I mean, you don't expect that's what a discrimination statute would require. But anyway, that's what the court said. And uh, lower courts have been a little bit confused by this. I certainly, Mark, I think you'd agree with this. Certainly many commentators always say that, you know, religious accommodation doesn't mean anything under Title VII because of this de minimis standard. But in this case, Mark, the court clarified that that's not really a standard, right? Yeah, that's right. And and uh, it, it did that. And as we'll talk about a little bit, um, it, it also... <laughs> you know, threw another shovel of dirt on the grave of, of Lemon's Establishment Clause test. And uh, and it might be, we'll talk a little bit about this, that that's actually the most interesting part of uh, what, what the court did in this case, uh, because the clarification that um, it made with respect to the de minimis, it's, it's true, it sort of got rid of that language, as we'll talk about, but just what it did to clarify the law with respect to what actually does constitute uh, significant or substantial uh, interference and so on with a or burden on, on an employee employer's uh, business is not so is not so uh, um, clear to me exactly what, what okay what, well let's focus let's focus on what the court said so so the, the the Groff court said that when you focus on this earlier case Hardison in its entirety you see that the test that the court really used in that case was not de minimis. Rather, the test is whether an accommodation would cause an employer to incur a substantial, that's the new word, a substantial increased cost in the context of the employer's business. So it's true that in Hardison, there's this one offhand statement about de minimis, but really when you look at the whole case, you see what the court was talking about was a substantial increased cost in the context of the employer's business. So as long as the employer can accommodate the religious practice or observance of an employee without incurring a substantial cost, the employer has to do it. That is now the new rule. And I should say, just for listeners who are, we've covered some of the facts before of this case, but just as a quick recap of the facts, uh, what happened here, so we have Groff, the petitioner who was an evangelical Christian who worked for the United States Postal Service, and when the post office started Sunday uh, delivery after it contracted with Amazon to do this, um, uh, Groff said, well, look, I, I can't work on Sundays. And then the employer, the Postal Service, did not accommodate him. And then he quit after a number of there were some accommodations that, were, that, that the employer tried to make. But, but basically, he was disciplined and, and he quit. And so it was at that point that he sued. Uh, under Title VII, uh, according to the the law that 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 you just laid out, Mark. So yes, the 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 upshot of the case is that um, the court says, yeah, you know, we didn't we didn't really mean it, or or um, uh, there's other language in Hardison that suggests that the de minimis language is um, is not the operative language, uh, and instead you have uh, a substantial increased cost test now. So again, like you say, not trivial as in de minimis, but substantial. But don't you think, Mark, that ultimately um, this is still going to be a highly sort of fact-sensitive, context-sensitive inquiry of what's substantial, what's insubstantial, how much 
how much burden on the like how much did we try to impose the burden on other people but the other people grumbled is the is grumbling a substantial burden do you have to have people actually leave the job in order for it to be a, all those things are still open right yeah and the court said that it was going to leave it to uh the lower courts and also to the eeoc which is the federal agency that's charged with enforcing uh title seven it's going to leave it to those uh those people to apply this in a quote common sense manner now, the court did predict not much was going to change because it said the EEOC had already been doing a pretty good job in applying the reasonable accommodation standard under Title VII. Um, and, but, it, but it didn't say, yes, just do whatever you're doing, right? It said, just, you know, just apply things in a common sense way and you'll probably not change things very much. I agree with you um, uh, on that. You know, Mark, I've written elsewhere about this. I think that oftentimes these these religion clause cases turn on this kind of thing, on, on common sense, intuitive judgments, whatever the court says. I mean, the court comes up with tests, compelling interest, whatever, strict scrutiny. But basically, the court is trying to understand and come to a common sense conclusion about what religious minorities can legitimately expect in, in a democratic republic like ours. And I think that's what the court is saying to do here. Just go ahead, try to figure this out in a common sense way. Uh, with, you know, the background test is going to be substantial burden on an employer's business. Yeah. So I, I think I agree with you. And this is a, I would say that this is exactly a sort of obsession esque kind of uh, uh, resolution in this case. It, you know, okay, we don't have the de minimis standard anymore. You know, in truth, courts were, as you indicated, all over the place with respect to just what de minimis required. You know, some people, in fact, my memory is that the Solicitor General, um, uh, sort of tried to re- try to say don't 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 fool with anything because lower courts kind of know what they're doing anyway. Right. You don't have to change any of the language. Right. So the court rejected that position, but but um, and it got rid of the de minimis language, and so now courts will be um, doing what they've always been doing, but with but applying the appropriate language or, or a more reasonable right. set of language. Now I, think I, I do right. think Mark that a more interesting part of the well, at least from my point of view. A, another, at least another interesting uh, part of the decision concerns the, some of the comments about the establishment clause that the court made. So one of the reasons in this opinion by Justice Alito, um, which, as you mentioned, was unanimous, one of the reasons that the de minimis standard came into being or was included in the Hardison decision was as a result, Alito said, of uh, various mistaken views about the scope of the Establishment Clause. That is, I think what he was trying to say was, um, you know, we, we used to have this view that, um, you know, imposing costs on third parties itself could trigger Establishment Clause worries. That is to say, imposing costs by exempting people on the basis of religious reasons from various sort of general requirements might trigger the Establishment Clause. And I thought it was kind of interesting that the court in this, again, that everybody signed on, A, to the idea that Lemon has been, I think the term that was used was abrogated. So was, is there a difference, Mark, between abrogated and overruled? You, you uh, I know, assume you, there is someone right now working very hard on an article that explains the difference, but I, I don't know what it would be, no. 
Okay, so that's one, right? You got a unanimous decision saying that Lemon is abrogated. Which Could I just say, Mark, I do think there's something, there's some bad form here, frankly. I mean, just like last term, right? Where, okay, well, everybody knows Lemon has been overruled and departed from, but we can't point to a single opinion where that happened, right? It just sort of, it just sort of happened. We all know it, even though the court can't, the court has never said we hereby overrule this case. It says we have overruled it, which is, as I say, not great form. It's true. I agree. It reminds me when I teach constitutional law of the declare war uh, 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 power in Congress, right? You know, just do you have to use the magic words? Do you have to say, does Congress have to say we declare war? Or can you infer that a war has been declared on the basis of various other? So like, can can we infer uh, overruling without the official words? You know, Lemon is hereby overruled. I think at this point we probably can, but it so. would have been better. It would have been better to have the formal statement. I agree. I agree. I agree with that. So that's number one. Now, and the second thing is, you know, there's been a lot of uh, chatter in academic circles about something called the third party harms or third party uh, uh, um, uh, accommodation, uh, uh, you know, imposition of harm theory. Um, and, you know, which is to say a theory that the Establishment Clause can be violated if uh, a certain degree of or a certain quality of quote-unquote harm is imposed on third parties as a result of religious accommodation. You know, the court didn't directly address those theories since they weren't part of the, of the case, but they did seem like a unanimous court poured a lot of cold water on that view of the Establishment Clause. So I thought that that was an interesting development as well. Okay, very good. So that that's the Groff case. Um, the second case we want to talk about, I think it's it certainly is the case that has drawn more attention, is 303 Creative versus Elenus or Elenus. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Now, this is a free speech case, not a free exercise case, but but free exercise questions were very much in the background here. Unlike Groff, this is a divided court. This is a six-three decision, and there was a very emotional dissent by. Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justices Kagan and Jackson. I should say Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion for the court. Um, I think this is a symbolically important case, um, and maybe more than symbolically important, but but let's let's talk about um, what happened in this case. So, Mark, I know you like the facts and listeners. This is a frequent um, a frequent um, uh, change in emph- or a frequent difference in emphasis between. Mark and myself. Mark likes to focus on facts very much. I like to focus on propositions, which gets me in trouble sometimes. So, Mark, why don't you focus on the facts of this case? I'm delighted. I'm delighted. That's that's actually I I like big picture things too. But I but I I will I will certainly plead guilty to enjoying facts. Okay. So here we have, and again, listeners, this is a recap for those of you who are who are loyal listeners to our podcast. This is going to be familiar. You have this website designer. Uh, who who brought a pre-enforcement action against the state of Colorado. Um, she didn't want to, uh, to design websites for same-sex weddings. Um, she had not yet been um, told by the state of Colorado that she had to do this if she wanted to remain in business, but she was uh, fearful that Colorado would require her to do uh, this under its anti-discrimination, it's state anti-discrimination act, which by the way, is the same statute as is in play or as was in play in, in Masterpiece Cake Shop and is, I suppose, continuing to be in play in some of the fights that um, the Colorado Baker uh, is is now fighting. So um, you have uh, CADA, the state's uh, public accommodations law that covers sexual orientation 
And she says, if Colorado applies CATA to her, um, that is going to violate her free speech rights under the First, uh, uh, the first Amendment. Um, so right. that's, that's the sort of setup. Yeah. And listeners will remember that I at least thought that ripeness was an issue in this case. This is a pre-enforcement challenge. Colorado hasn't actually prosecuted her for anything, which I thought was an issue in the case as a Fed courts professor, but I should have known better. Uh, and, and Gorsuch just brushes that issue aside. And actually, Justice Sotomayor in dissent didn't really talk about it either. So this, this just shows the myopia of a federal courts professor thinking this was really going to make a difference, but it didn't. Right. And we should mention also that um, subsequent to this case, I've seen this on social media and in other places, um, there was an accusation that that um, the controversy here was a fake controversy, that it was kind of ginned up by um, for the Supreme Court, uh, but it wasn't an, a, a real controversy, right? That it was just, you know, they had, they had kind of arranged for somebody to re- uh, request something so that she could then reject it so that she could then take it to the court. Um, apparently, that's... Uh, you know, that's not what we're talking about here with respect to the pre-enforcement act, action. There was a real ripeness issue here, um, even though the court didn't seem to think uh, that that there was. Anyways, that's some some of what we talked about last time in our in our uh, oral argument podcast. But as you say, really didn't figure into the to, to the result. Yeah, I don't want to beat it up too much, belabor it too much. But those of our listeners who are my federal court students will, I mean, this is the kind of thing standing. It's its rarely a showstopper unless the court wants it to be. It's really a very manipulable doctrine. And I guess that's kind of what we learned here, too. OK, so the court held that applying the Colorado statute, CADA, to the petitioner would violate the First Amendment. And there are a couple of issues here. First, the court said this is a pure speech case. The court said the party stipulated that the petitioner's websites were custom designed and expressed her point of view. Now it's true the designs also expressed the customer's point of view, but the court said that doesn't mean that the websites weren't hers as well. Now, again, I've always been a little dubious about this. I've said it a hundred times in past podcasts and elsewhere that if I go into a baker and I say, you know, I want a cake for my cousin, Bob, who is just the best cousin in the world, and the baker does that. I don't think anybody thinks the baker really believes my cousin Bob is the best cousin in the world, although he is. He's a great cousin. Um, you know, it's not really the baker's speech. But um, but uh, the court says, actually, that doesn't matter because um, it is at least in part her expression. In fact, the parties stipulated that. Yeah, I, I look, I, I thought the majority's points here actually were pretty persuasive about uh, you know, when you make a quote unquote creative professional choose between having to be quiet or, or actually produce speech that that violates the the person's beliefs. Right. So in a situation like this, so you could distinguish, for example, between, you know, if if you if you go into somebody that, you know, a salesman of, or of lawn chairs or something and you say, you know, I need 100 lawn chairs for my event that is going to be going that, you know, that's going to be celebrating some issue that the lawn chair salesman doesn't want to celebrate. Well, in that case, Ed Mark, your point seems to be stronger, right? Well, like you, all you're doing is really just selling lawn chairs. You're not making a statement by selling lawn chairs. You're not a creative uh, lawn chair professional salesman or something like that. But in the situation where you actually do have to uh, make something or say something or express something, then there is, it seems to me, a kind of more blended quality about uh, speaking those words 
uh, whether those words are really the customer's words or one's own words, the, the creator's words. I think it's probably a little bit of both there. Yeah, I guess so. Look, so so I, I have to say I thought it was an issue, but but obviously the court did not, and and that that issue went away. But the sort of more I guess interesting issue here is is this one, which. Uh, so the lower court held, the Tenth Circuit held that even if Kata did restrict speech here, that is the designer's speech, strict scrutiny was satisfied because the state has a compelling interest in preventing discrimination in the marketplace on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, and the Supreme Court disagreed with that. Supreme Court, well, it didn't disagree that the state has a compelling interest in preventing discrimination in public accommodations, but the court said that that interest um, didn't justify forcing someone to express views that he or she didn't hold. Um, so, you know, kata can apply to a vast array of public accommodations, lots of businesses. Maybe some of these cases will be difficult, but this is not a difficult one, Gorsuch said. This was obviously speech, and Colorado can't force you to say what you don't believe. Yeah, I think that's right, Mark. And I think a, a big a big issue in this case, and in and, and truth, what makes, at least from my perspective, what makes this case an easy one is the stipulation of the parties that you mentioned, right? Everybody agreed um, that the petitioner didn't discriminate against LGBTQ customers, right? Well, that, that's right. That was, that was another stipulation. That was a stipulation. So, right. And everybody agreed that this was pure speech. This wasn't, you know, that, that this was a pure speech situation. Um, so this, everybody agreed that this was not status discrimination. It was message discrimination. Well, right, hang so on now. That's, so that's actually what I think is the crux of this case. So, so what, what Justice Gorsuch says is that based on the party stipulations, she was not discriminating against gay customers. She was simply declining to design websites that expressed approval of things that she didn't approve. So, so that's this a stipulation, wasn't... right? That, that's a, that is a stipulated fact, I think, right? So, so this was, in other words, she was not discriminating on the basis of status. She was discriminating on the basis of message. Now, Justice Sotomayor in dissent mocked this reasoning. And I do think it is the crux of the dispute here, this distinction between status and message. And I want to point out that, that Justice Gorsuch is not the first high court judge to make this distinction. In a case called Lee versus Asher's Bakery, which is a UK Supreme Court decision from 2018, and in fact, the subject of our very first Legal Spirits podcast, the UK Supreme Court said this is a distinction. In that case, it was a bakery that didn't want to make a cake with a pro-gay marriage message, uh, and the bakery was sued under British anti-discrimination law. And the court said this isn't discrimination that violates the law because this is someone who objects to the message, not to the customer. And indeed, Justice Gorsuch cites this case, uh, Asher's Bakery, although only in a footnote. But it does seem to me this is the crux of the distinction here. If you, if you think that that's a tenable distinction, then I think this opinion makes sense. If you don't think that is a tenable distinction, and Justice Sotomayor obviously doesn't think it's a tenable distinction, then I think the case comes out uh, another way. All right, Mark. So let's talk a little bit about takeaways. So um as you say, this is uh, a, sim a symbolic opinion. It's generated a lot of a lot of um, uh, strong reaction, I think, from those who are uh, who think it's who think it's wrong. Um, do you think it's that there's more in the case than than the sort of um, 
then then that symbolic sort of culture war uh, uh, significance is that there's that is significant doctrinally. What do you think? Yeah, so I think it is. I think it is symbolically very significant, and obviously the symbolism is very important to people on both sides, both to LGBT Americans and also the traditionally religious. This is a very important symbolic case. Practically speaking, I wonder how significant it will be. There are not a lot of expressive businesses nowadays that would, you know, not want to express approval of same-sex marriage. I don't know how many cases like this there will be. Um, so I think it's, in that sense, more important symbolically than it is practically, although symbolism is important. I do think, though, that this status message distinction could be, could be very important in future cases and other contexts, maybe. So, Mark, you'll remember a case from about a dozen years ago called CLS versus Martinez. And in that case, a university had an all-comers policy for student groups, and a Christian group did, want, did not want to admit as members people who engaged in, in same-sex relations. Uh, and the student group said, we're not discriminating on the basis of status. We're, everyone is a sinner. We are excluding people based on their behavior. Um, or I guess to continue the analogy, we are excluding people based on what our approval of their behavior would send, what, what message that would send to people. And the court in CLS versus Martinez said that is simply not a tenable distinction, that in the context of LGBT discrimination, status and conduct is not a tenable distinction. It would be like saying a tax on yarmulkes, which are religious uh, headgear that, that observant Jews wear, the caps, skull caps. A tax on yarmulkes is a tax on Jews, right? That's what it amounts to. And the court said the same thing here. Excluding someone based on homosexual activity is status discrimination. And I wonder now, what do you think, Mark? I wonder after this case whether there isn't some pressure being placed on CLS versus Martinez and the reasoning in CLS versus Martinez. Yeah, I, I think that's a very astute point, and I think it's right. I think uh, CLS versus Martinez, I think if it came now my memory of CLS versus Martinez is in that one, too, there were a number of stipulated facts. Correct. Uh, and, and, but they were, they were stipulated going in the sort of the wrong direction for Chris, the Christian legal society, right? And, and as a result, there was, a, there were, there, there were some, some big disputes over the, what the operative facts were in that case. Now, if, you know, assuming with those, we could clear those out and we could focus specifically on the issue of status conduct. I wonder if CLS versus Martinez comes out differently. Uh, I wonder. Uh, I mean, it's a little different, of course. Uh, well, I'm sure people will say it's a lot different. I guess there are distinctions here. But at least to my mind, the fact that the court is willing to make this status message distinction in this context makes me wonder whether they would make similar distinctions in other contexts where up till now they have said there is no distinction. I'll say one more thing, too, about the status conduct distinction. Of course, we've been seeing that in some of the um, uh, some of the government, um, you know, financial support cases as well in cases like Trinity Lutheran or Espinoza or Carson versus Macon, um, where at one point, you know, the court said, look, you can't, for example, exclude religious schools qua religious schools as religious schools from the receipt of a generally available public benefit. Um, and then they ended up saying in later ones, wait, not only can't you exclude them, you can't even you can't exclude them, even if you know the use to which the school is going to put the money is religious in nature. So, you know, that was that was the issue in, in Carson, right, where, um, you know, where where the state of Maine was trying to kind of ex they, they, they didn't want monies to go to particular kinds of religious schools and so on or kinds of education and religious schools. So 
there's a similar, there's an analogous kind of uh, disagreement that is happening in the uh, religious status versus conduct area that is now happening in the LGBTQ status versus conduct area that might be worth, oh, I don't know, a small paper or something like that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very astute comment. Yeah, I hadn't thought of those cases in this context, but that's exactly right. The status conduct distinction comes up there too. Now, of course, the court has reserved uh, whether a state can uh, withhold funding if a school discriminates or does something like that. We haven't reached that issue yet, but um, but that is a really interesting point. That's a nice point too, Mark. Now, Mark, you, you said that uh, this case seems like an easy case to you. So why don't you explain that? Well, didn't so seem, it didn't seem easy to the, to the dissenters. I suppose so. I mean, it, it seemed easy to me in light of the stipulations, right? I mean, if, if you stipulate that you're dealing with pure speech, right? Um, uh, you know, from my memory, there's not one single case that said that uh, on, uh, on these sort of compelled speech matters, that it is permissible for the government to compel speech, pure speech in this kind of context. So this is an easier case, for example, than some of the other cases that we've seen bubbling up around these issues. You know, the Arlene's Flowers case dealing with a florist or even Masterpiece Cake Shop itself, which ended up not being decided on free speech grounds. It ended up being decided on this sort of, uh, um, you know, sort of religious free exercise discrimination ground. Um, but on a free on on a stipulated set of facts that you're dealing with pure speech on a compelled speech issue, to me, I thought that this was a kind of if they couldn't get it if they couldn't come to a nine zero decision on a case like this, I don't know what they could with respect to with on a compelled speech matter. And yet you have, as you say, this uh, dissent uh, by Justice Sotomayor, which frankly I thought was rather weak. It, it made a number of factual errors. Uh, it discussed sort of, you know, irrelevant uh, 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 issues unrelated to the case. The majority said it, it's like the majority in dissent were looking at totally different, totally different cases, totally different set of facts or different legal issues. Um, but maybe all of this goes to the fact that, you know, maybe there are no more easy cases in, in these areas, right? They've become so polarized or people feel so strongly about them that what look like easy cases uh, to somebody like like me, for example, and understandably, I'm, I'm not, I'm, this is not the point of view from nowhere, right? I mean, I have my own set of views, but, but still, you know, to make sort of um, graduated, uh, 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 graduated distinctions between what seems like an easier case and what seems like a more difficult case, like something like Masterpiece Cake Shop even, um, that seems to be dissolving as a, uh, as a kind of a, something that can be done by folks like us, by you know, law professors. Well, this is why when I say that these cases, this case has a, a more symbolic than practical significance. Although I should say Justice Sotomayor thinks it does have practical significance. She says this is going to contribute to the backlash against the LGBT people in America. When I say that it has more symbolic than practical importance, I don't mean to, to dismiss it because symbolism is extremely important. And um, in our culture today, the symbolism here really seems to drive a lot of what our, our fights are about. And as you say, that is part of the polarization of America in these culture war issues that doesn't seem to be getting uh, better. Doesn't seem to be, we don't seem to be able to bracket those in a way. Okay, well, so that's our wrap up of this term. So um, I wanna thank you listeners for once again joining us for another episode of Legal Spirits. Uh, we'll see if anything else happens this summer. We'll be right back if, if there's an important development. 
Um, otherwise, you might take it a little easy this summer, so we'll see. But until we see you next time, this is uh, Mark Mopsessian and Mark DiGiralami, the two co-directors of the Center for Law and Religion, wishing you all a good summer. Uh, if you want to find past episodes of Legal Spirits, you can go on various streaming platforms like Apple iTunes and Android, uh, Spotify, or you can look at our website, which is Law and Religion Forum. That's one word, .org. Okay, have a good summer, Mark. Thank you, you too, Mark. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs>